Blog Talk Radio. This is Alex McManus. Welcome to All Things M.M. Our guest is Scott McKnight, author of The Blue Parakeet. Today we have as our guest Alan Hirsch. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Alex. How are you doing, man? For our listeners in Latin America, buenos dias. In just a few moments, we'll be speaking with our guest, Leonard Sweet, author of So Beautiful. Please find the gap between the train and the platform. You know, Len, I think that the question of what it means to be human may be the central question of the 21st century. I agree with you. Hey, we can, we're talking about transhuman now. We don't even know how it is to be human. And we're talking about science making us into transhuman and, and uh, you know, cyborg human and all this other stuff. And listen, we can't even get what it means to be human right. We're in deep doo-doo. One of the things. This is Alex McManus. Welcome to All Things M.M. Morning. It's Friday, the 18th of December in the year 2009. Welcome to All Things M, the internet radio broadcast of the International Mentoring Network. And this is Alex McManus uh, back at you on Friday. It's a great day. Uh, today we have a, a fantastic program. Uh, in the second half of the program, we have Awakening Movement um, leader Diallo Smith from Detroit. And they've started a new uh, community in Detroit following the, the launch of their community in Houston. And uh, we are looking forward to chatting with him in the second half of the hour. The first half of the hour, uh, we have author Frank Viola, um, and he is here live to chat with us. If you're listening on the Internet, you can call in uh, via 347, via phone, at 347-308-8021. That's 347 347- 3088021. And at this time, I want to welcome my uh, guest host, Shella. Hey, Shella, good morning. Good morning, Alex. And as you know, Shella, we have uh, Frank Viola. I know. Hi. Who has uh, written a number of books. And um, the website that I have to give you, we'll ask Frank in just a few moments what his preferred website is, but I found ptmin.org ptmin.org, and he's written okay. uh, The Untold Story, uh, Pagan Christianity, Reimagining Church from Eternity and Here, Finding Organic Church. This is the five-book re-church series, mm-hmm. and we'll be chatting with Frank about why he wrote it and uh, what effect it's having on the, on the larger uh, Christ-following movement. Frank, thank you so much for being our guest today. I've been interested as I've been reading your websites, listening to a couple of your interviews, and... Um, following some of the banter about your book online. Uh, and so it's, you know, been very exciting um, preparing to chat with you. And I want to kind of start by just asking you, you know, the broad question, the softball question here about your research series, mm-hmm. why you wrote it, and uh, along with that, if you can touch on a little bit of what effect it's had on the church. Sure, appreciate that very much. Quickly, the the Rechurch series or the Rechurch library is five books, and all of them work together. The, I guess the motivation behind it is we hope to see the course of church history changed. 
some point in the future, and uh, these books were written in hopes that they would help toward that goal. The first one is called The Untold Story of the New Testament Church, and that is a, it's a very unique look at the New Testament. What it does is it puts all of the letters uh, in the New Testament, the Gospels, etc., in chronological order and puts the reader there in the first century. And you watch from Pentecost all the way to Patmos, the story, the narrative unfold chronologically. And so you're following Paul of Tarsus, for example, uh, as he goes into the region of Galatia, plants four churches, he leaves and uh, gets wind of what's happening there, and he picks up his pen. In that case, he dips it in acid and (laughs) writes the letter to the Galatian. And before you open up Galatians, you just read the story, the background, you've smelled the smells, you've met the people. And so it makes the New Testament come alive. It turns it into a living book rather than just a bunch of chapters and verses all sewn together out of chronological order. So that's what that does. The second one, uh, which you mentioned before, is Pagan Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that book has a lot of vinegar in it, I will admit. Uh, <laughs> what it does really is it attempts Well, my to... daughter loved it. Oh, oh bless her heart. <laughs> She's 19. She said, wow, this is really good. Well, good. Well, she's then one of our... One of our uh, two fans then uh, planted with that book. Uh, when Barna and I released that in January 2008, my goodness, the firestorm, we were getting hate mail from Quakers and Amish. Um, but anyway, the the book traces uh, where we got all of our Protestant church practices from. And the shocker is that historically, uh, virtually none of it came from the New Testament, came from Jesus Christ or the Apostles. The point we're not making in the book is that if something's pagan, it must be wrong. Right. Uh, I'm sitting on the floor uh, on a carpet. This carpet was invented by pagans, folks. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. Uh, but we're saying those things that we have brought straight into the Christian faith from Greco-Roman customs and traditions um, that redefined the Church of Jesus Christ from what Jesus Christ initiated it to be. Those are the things we put the spotlight on and, and are raising serious questions about. So that's what Pagan Christianity does. It's a, it's a deconstructive book, but it's not a standalone book. It was never meant to be read alone. The, the sequel is Reimagining Church, and that's the other side of the coin. And what that does is it presents what the New Testament church was really like how they met together, how they gathered, what their leadership was like, how they dealt with problems, how they expressed the Lord together, what their community life was like. And it's very different from what we have on the planet today in most cases. So that's a challenging book, and it basically makes the point that we can return to this today. I've been meeting in churches like that described in the book for the last 21 years. It is possible. It's not a theory. It's not an abstraction. It can be done. Um, and then the, la- the last two, From Eternity to Here, is a big look at God's grand mission. And looking at it very differently, uh, not starting the story in Genesis 3 with the fall. And this is where we get revivalist theology. And most of our uh, missional teaching and talk today is rooted in <clears throat> the presupposition that what God really wants, his eternal purpose, is the salvation of souls. And that um, that's why we're here on the planet, is to save the lost. 
And while that is correct, it's not complete at all. God had an intention in his heart that happened before the fall, even before creation. When uh, the Lord created the first human beings in Genesis 1 and 2, he had an intention for them that uh, had nothing to do with salvation because they were unfallen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so instead of beginning the story in Genesis 3 with the fall, we begin... In Genesis 1 and 2, even before that, in Ephesians, the scripture talks about what was going on in eternity past when God had a dream in his heart. And that's what From Eternity to Here does, is it traces the story, the grand, big, sweeping epic of God's grand mission, his eternal purpose from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. And that brings us to the last book, Finding Organic Church, Mm -hmm. which is the practical answer to all this. When readers read the first four volumes or any one of them and they say, okay, I'm on board, I I see that God has something higher, something deeper, something richer in the way of church, in the experience of the body of Christ, I want it. How do I get there? How do we plant such churches today? Can it be done? And the answer to that question is yes, and, and I write out of my experience of 21 years of planting churches like this and working with churches like this and being part of churches, as I've described in these other books, uh, how it can be practically manifested. So that's Finding Organic Church. And the whole reason why I wrote these books, Alex, is because, A, as a young man in my 20s, I left the institutional church, as millions of Christians are doing today. Hmm. And I didn't leave the Lord. I actually found him richer and brighter than I ever had before in an experience of community, authentic community without all the trappings of institutional Christianity, without all the traditions that we have. But uh, I found the Lord in a living, breathing experience of a body of Christ with other believers. And I was constantly asked by people, where do you go to church? Well, um, I don't don't go to church. (laughs) Church isn't something you go to. Okay, what's the name of your church? Well, we don't have a name. Who's the pastor? Well, we don't have a pastor. (laughs) And so after the person was just squinting at me and looking at me like I was from Plant 10, I decided, well, you know what? I need to write something, (laughs) put it in their hands that will not only present what we're doing, but give the biblical historical support for it. And uh, Christians outside the religious system, the institutional church who gather under the headship of Jesus Christ, we have a historical and a biblical right to exist. And uh, if you trace the history of people who have met this way, without uh, the institutional trappings and structures and paraphernalia, we have been persecuted historically. And so I've, I've put this series out to show God's people who are hungry, who are seeking, who were like me when I was a young man and said, I can't do this anymore. There's got to be something more than this. I mean, that was the the heart cry in my heart, Alex, was there's got to be more than this. I would sit in a pew, stare at the back of someone's head for 45 minutes, in many cases bored out of my mind, and I would say, there's got to be more than this. This can't be it. And I found um, that Jesus Christ is so much more, and his body inexperienced is so much more, and thus was the provocation of that series of books. And today we have a revolution, to use George Barna's uh, phrase or term, a second reformation, as some sociologists are calling it, where we have a mass exodus of Christians leaving the institutional churches. We know it today, and uh, many of them are finding Christ in a very simple, real, authentic way outside the walls of church buildings, and they're experiencing what I call organic church life. 
And uh, the books have been, for the most part, widely received, well-received. Probably the most common response I get is, you have given me language for that with which I have known in my heart for many years. You just put it into words. And you've also given the biblical and historical support. Of course, we get some people who (laughs) are absolutely livid because the status quo has been challenged. And uh, it's always fun to get mail like that. But for the most part, um, most of it is is very positive and very encouraging and very humbling, to be honest. We're speaking with uh, Frank Viola, author of the five-book Rechurch series that he just basically has outlined, given a thumbnail of each book. If you have a question uh, that you'd like to ask Frank, type it into the chat room or press number one on your phone or on your keypad, and that will... Through this amazing technology, raise a hand on my switchboard and lets me know that you have a comment to make or a question to ask. So, Frank, tell me, what is, um, you mentioned that uh, some people are livid because the status quo has been challenged. What, you know, what are the kinds of objections you get to organic church? Yeah. Uh, One of the big ones is, are you saying then that, God has been silent for 2,000 years, and just now he's restoring the church. And that question is is interesting because one of the points we make in the book is that God has always used the institutional church in whatever form. That would include the Catholic church, it would include the Orthodox church, uh, Anglican church, and all of the 33 thousand plus denominations <laughs> in Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Pagan Christianity, which is our most controversial book, George Barna and I say very clearly that um, God used the institutional church in our lives. You know, I owe my baptism to the institutional church. I owe my salvation. But God's use of something does not equate his approval of it. We have to remember that uh, ancient Israel wanted a king to rule over them. Give us a king. And that was not God's perfect will. Yet he did respond, and he still loved Israel, and he still blessed Israel, and he gave him a king. Israel was taken to Babylon for 70 years, the whole nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that 70 years was over, the Lord uh, allowed the way for them to go back to Jerusalem, the place where he had chosen his name to be, the place where he wanted his house, his temple, to be erected. And we read the story, and it's tragic because only a remnant returned. Only 2% of God's people returned. And the reason is is because God's people in Babylon were being blessed uh, to a very high degree. You know, they built vineyards, they built homes, they had businesses, and they built the synagogue, which was not God's perfect will. But the point is he blessed them, he was with them, he loved them, But being in Babylon was not his highest and best. And so that's really the answer to that question, yet it's difficult for people to um, to kind of understand the whole history. You have to look at all of history, and we cannot say that well, everything that's happened historically in the Christian church has been God's perfect will. Sure. It's it's fun to think, it's fun to imagine that if God had gotten his way, there would never have been a king, David. Hey, we have a, a question. Uh, coming in from the switchboard. Welcome to All Things M. We're speaking with author Frank Viola. Tell us your first name and your question or comment. All right. My name is Dan Kopp, and I have a question for you, uh, Frank. I've read only your first two books, 
uh, in the series Untold Story New Testament Church, Pagan Christianity. Really challenged by what I wrote, underlined a whole bunch of stuff, put stars in the columns and all that. My question is this. If you're part of an institutional church right now, and you're challenged, obviously, by pagan Christianity, and there's truth ringing all over those pages, what steps would you recommend to take? What are some practical steps to take to become that, that New Testament church or, or become part of one? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, let me answer it in the negative. Uh, do not buy copies of pagan Christianity and pass it around the congregation. <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> um, because you inevitably will create confusion, A, and B, division. And uh, we, we don't want any part of that. We're not supportive of that. And if you were to give it to your pastor, then um, you want to tread real carefully and uh, know that you may have a fight on your hands if you end up doing that. It just depends on where he's coming from, he or she. Um, if you are the pastor, it's different. The two things I would say is if you read the book and you're not in leadership, okay, this, I'll answer it two levels. You're not in, in leadership. First thing I would say is please read the next book, Reimagining Church, because you've only gotten one half of the conversation. You've gotten deconstructive. Uh, you've not gotten constructive. So we always want people to read both books lest they uh, come into some misunderstanding, and that has often happened. But the other thing is you have to settle an issue with the Lord. Do I want to still be here? I am not a proponent of trying to change an institutional church if you're not part of the leadership because in every case I have seen, it has created lots of wounds, lots of pain. Um, it's it's kind of like trying to um, take down a tower from the bottom. It will fall on you. <laughs> and I just don't think it's a good thing to do. I don't think it's wise. I think the question that someone has to answer is, does the Lord want me here and go along with what's happening, even though I may disagree with it, or does he want me to leave? And I think that's the question that every person who is in that position needs to needs to answer prayerfully. Uh, because I, to try to change it, the way the structure is set up in most churches is there's really not a venue to do that in a peaceful way. Now, if you're in leadership, that's a totally different issue. If you're the pastor, that's totally different. And I would suggest you get the book Finding Organic Church and read it from cover to cover because you will find a couple things. One is how were the churches planted in the first century? And um, I believe there are timeless principles that do not change across culture and across generations that we can lay hold of. That's the first thing. The second thing, there's a section for pastors that tell them some practical things they can do to begin the transition. And I say begin the transition because it's a process. There's no cookie-cutter answer on this because every uh, congregation is different. Every congregation is invested financially in different ways. Some have, you know, multimillion-dollar buildings. Some have mega churches. Some have very small corner grocery store churches, you know. So it just depends, but I do give some principles on what they can do. So that's the way I would answer that on those two levels, but I want to underscore and repeat one thing. Never, never cause division. If you have a conviction that you're in a church and it's doing things wrong, I say either resolve it in your own heart and go along with it and support it, or leave quietly and don't slam the door when you go out. Great. Frank, we have a question from the chat room from Mike. My experience with nearly every—I'm reading now. My experience with nearly every person I know 
who is in an organic church or a house church does not feel very Christ-like. They are angry and bitter and are highly critical of any other form of church other than organic. Have you encountered this? You know, I have seen that in some house churches. I've never seen it in an organic church. First of all, I'm not a proponent of house churches. A house church is simply a group of Christians that meets in a home. Now, that ranges from glorified Bible studies that meet in a living room. It ranges from traditional churches that meet in a living room that have uh, pews bolted to the floor <laughs> and a pastor and everybody dresses up and they have a service in a house. Uh, that ranges all the way to grade A certified cults. So when you say house church, you're just talking about Christians that meet in home, and quite frankly, I wouldn't give you two cents for most of the house churches on the planet today. They're shallow, they're anemic, they're insipid. Many of them are not Christ-centered at all. There's very little depth in Christ. And uh, sometimes you find what this gentleman is talking about. That's what he's run into. Now, when you talk about the organic expression of the church of Jesus Christ, which is what I'm talking about, what I'm promoting, what I'm advocating, what the New Testament envisions, you're talking about a people who are absolutely consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. These people are learning how to live by an indwelling Lord. Not trying to be like Jesus by opening up the New Testament and reading it and saying, let's try to be good and don't cuss, don't drink, don't run with those who do and all that stuff. But you're talking about a people who are learning how to lay hold of Christ who lives in them by the Spirit together. Learning how to know Him together. Learning how to live by His own life together. That's what really an organic church is. It's a group of people who are learning to live by an indwelling Lord. Just as Jesus lived by the Father. So the point is, I've never seen that in an organic expression of the church, an authentic one, a real one. In fact, quite the opposite. They don't ever talk about the institutional church. For example, in the churches I work with and that I'm in relationship with, the institutional church never comes up. We're too busy pursuing Jesus Christ. And so it's not even an issue. Um, we're always talking about the Lord. And that's, yeah. that's all they're talking about. So we're talking about two very different things there. Yeah, the, uh, we're down to our last minute. I, I, I'd love to squeeze in one wow. more question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that was quick. You know, the, 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 I'd love to have a follow-up on that because um, somewhere down the road, maybe not today because I do want to let this new caller call in, but the question that, that does come to mind is, um, you know, by that definition, uh, could a megachurch be an organic church? And mm -hmm. I'm sure you have a lot to say on that, and I've read some of your material. It would be mm -hmm. a, a fun discussion. But um, I want to bring in this caller. Welcome to All Things M. Uh, let us know your first name and what comments or question you have for Frank Viola. Hi, this is Kyle calling, and uh, I'm also a part of the institutional church, Frank. Love your stuff. Thank you. Uh, this is phenomenal conversation. I'm still challenged and stretched by what you said. I'd also say that I love it that... Uh, I think you're on the right track when you say that the Quakers and the Amish are sending you hate mail, by the way. <laughs> well, that was a joke, you realize. <laughs> oh, I totally believe it, but I, I think when you get Rockstone at you, you're doing the right thing. Uh, here's, my, here's my question for you. Uh, we, I've been struggling with uh, something in my mind a lot lately regarding the first century church and how we tend to compare ourselves to that. And I know there's a cultural distance between how we are today and the first century, and I wonder the, the wisdom of always comparing ourselves to something that's so different so long ago. Mm -hmm. And is there a place, you know, there are there all kind of churches for all kind of people. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, is it fair to always be comparing ourselves to the first century when it was so long ago? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I think we have to be very careful here because you can fall off one side of the horse or the other. Yeah. Uh, one side of the horse would say, well, that was the first century. They did things very differently. It was a different culture, a different mindset, a different language. So basically, let's just dump whatever we read in the New mm-hmm. Testament about the church and let's create and I'm filling this in myself because this is where it leads us, let's create the church according to our own image and our own culture. And that's what ends up happening with that justification. The other side of the coin is to say everything that happened in the first century is mandated, so we have to take the New Testament as some kind of an ironclad blueprint and mechanically put it into effect. What I think the difference here is the way to wisdom, which is justified by her children, would be to look at the New Testament and say, okay, what are the teachings of Jesus regarding the church, number one? Two, what are the timeless teachings of the apostles regarding the church? And then when we look at the practices, we have to separate what's culturally conditioned uh, from what is the uh, spiritual and divine principle that is unchanging. And what I do in the book Reimagining Church is I try to make that very distinction. The church is an organism. She is organic, and she is a life. Her life emits from the life of God, which changeth not. Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, forever. And so there are things that are built into the DNA of the church that do not change. They're explained by the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, and they're exemplified in the first century church. And when you transition them over here to the 21st century, that same expression is there. The features are still there. I'll give you one example. The church is an extended family. It is an extended household. And that's not just rhetoric. That is reality. And when a church fleshes out that she is, in fact, the family of God, then the saints treat one another as brothers and sisters. And they have authentic community. And they really, truly see one another as kin. And uh, that would just be one example uh, of many. Hey, Frank, you've already given us several minutes past your your commitments. I want to thank you so much. Uh, by the way, Mike says, thanks, Frank, your definition of organic helps. Um, <clears throat> thank you so much for being our guest today. And, um, Frank, what what's the best website? The the one you mentioned, ptmin.org, or you can get to it the same way by just typing in frankviola.com. As we kind of meld from the, your segment, which has been really fantastic, into the next, I'd like to bring on Diallo Smith. And uh, Diallo, are you there? Yes, sir. Hey, Frank, I'd like for you to meet Diallo. Hey, Diallo. Hey, Frank, I've been, um, I've been, I feel like I got a, a seminary lecture for free, so I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, goodness well, me. Hey, I want to thank you. That's what we do here at All Things Then. We bring on cutting-edge thought leaders and activists and, and let them uh, teach us and instruct us, and um, hopefully we'll be able to get Frank back on the show somewhere for more of an extended and even more in-depth mm. conversation. So that would be fun. I really enjoy that. And it's nice meeting you, brother. And just so you know, I've never been to seminary. I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a registered nurse. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that actually elevates your status here. So it sure you know, does. Yeah, no, it really, really does.